So last week was part one of this mini-series revolving around the question of power. We talked a lot about the paradoxes of power in the life of Jesus, how when you lay down your life, that's when you will find life, how glory comes from submission, how the last shall be first, all those excellent promises that turn the world's default settings on their head, turns the world upside down. We met a common guy, Philip, who was a great leader precisely because of his heart for serving the most vulnerable people in society. That's what made him great. Philip also brought the gospel to the Samaritans, an enormous stepping stone in the book of Acts, as the believers begin to follow the command of Jesus to bear witness to him to the ends of the earth. But before he can get to the ends of the earth, there was a quick pit stop in Samaria. Uh, we'll discuss the Samaritans a little bit further this morning. And we'll also have a follow-up discussion on another fascinating aspect of the story about power. And that's the man Simon the Magician. Last week, Simon seemed to be making excellent choices to draw himself in as a faithful believer. Though he was tremendously powerful in a charismatic, supernatural, celebrity obsession sort of a way, and there's many Christian figures today who fit that bill, um, he set aside his power when confronted with the divine power of the Holy Spirit, um, as witnessed in the message and miracles of Philip. At first, Simon seems to demonstrate a heart of discipleship, something like Peter, uh, when he was first called by his Messiah, set down his rod, the thing that gave him wealth, the thing that gave him security, and followed Jesus. Simon seems to do a similar thing. He sets aside the magic that had made him prosperous and powerful in order to follow the one who, who bears true eternal power. But the key word there is seems. It seems like Simon is doing that. It seems like he's setting aside power uh, for something greater. I think this morning's sermon will illustrate what Simon's heart truly desires. And spoiler alert, it isn't a life of sacrifice and service given over to Jesus Christ. But first, I want to return to those paradoxes of power that I mentioned. The reason that they seem like paradoxes uh, to us is because they are totally separate from the world's perception of where power comes from, how it's obtained, and what purpose it serves. The reason the kingdom teachings about power seem backwards to us is because we're used to the world's teachings about power, and those are actually the ones that are backwards. So these are the, when you live them out, Jesus' teachings on power begin to really, really make sense and become more and more beautiful. For a quick view of how the world perceives power, look no further than Forbes magazine, which publishes an annual list of the most powerful men and women in the world. Uh, they are very upfront about the qualities of the people who make up this list. Forbes is, so I looked on their went to the article and clicked on it, and they were very upfront that this is how we choose these people. Uh, they are. It must be a person who has power over a great number of people and uses that power. They don't say positively or negative, just uses their power over people, whether through military might, political authority, business savvy, or financial clout. There's lots of ways that you can be powerful in this world of ours. You could probably guess who some of the names on the list are. I'm sure. The first four wield tremendous political authority that influences the entire globe. Want to guess who number one was in 2016? Go ahead. Go ahead and guess. You'd think Trump. Not Gates is, I think, number eight on the list. He's up there. Putin. Number two is Trump, and I'm sure they would be switched, except that Putin put Trump there in the first place. So Putin is number one. There's nothing controversial about that. You know it's true. Putin's number one. Trump is number two. Number three is German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who also happens to be the de facto head of the EU. 
Um, so kind of the most powerful leader in Europe, also the highest ranking woman on the list, followed by number four, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, Xi Jinping, the president of China. In case you're curious, the local heartthrob Justin Trudeau clocks in at number 66. The rest of the list, the rest of the list is made up of bankers, CEOs of mega corporations like Google, Apple, GE, and Disney, um, and terrorizers like the leaders of the Islamic State, Kim Jong-un, and the CEO of Walmart. <laughs> That's a slight at you, Angie. My personal favorite on the list is number five, Pope Francis, a man who devotes his power to uplift the least of these. Of all the popes in recent memory, he's the one who seems to be the most serious about Jesus' call to care for the poor. And he's the only Christian figure on this list, and that is appropriate to me. That's exactly as it should be, because I'm not sure a pastor or a nun or a Sunday school teacher belongs on a list of names like Rupert Murdoch or the guy who runs Saudi Arabia's oil exports or the vice president, Mike Pence, or the president of Iran, or the guy who owns Toyota, or Trump. How did Trump rise to power? An enormously wealthy man colludes with other powerful white men to assert their dominance, promising to be the voice of the common man. But what exactly is common about a man like Donald Trump, other than his whiteness and his maleness and his loudness? There's not a lot about Donald Trump that looks anything like anybody I know. He is a portrait of power in the modern world. He wields financial power, corporate power, celebrity power, political power, and now military power. And who is left in the wake of his enormous power? Just even in the, the election run-up, who was demeaned and degraded by, by him? Women, minorities, foreigners, the poor, basically everyone Jesus came to seek and save. It would be impossible to, to declare that the two most powerful men in the world, Putin and Trump, according to Forbes, view power the same way as men like Philip or Peter or Jesus. They are diametrically opposite, those men, these, those two groups of men. Those at the, tops of the top of the Forbes list wield a power that serves themselves and people like them. By people like them, that may mean a nation, that may mean other wealthy white men who run the world, pathetically, sadly. They, they serve, their power serves themselves and others like them. But those on the list of biblical heroes wield a power that serves others, and that is what makes them powerful. They use their power to serve others in ways that bring glory not to themselves, but to the God whom they serve. It's a power not measured by metrics of control, military control, corporate control, political or financial control. It's a power measured by life, life saved, life renewed, life reborn in the kingdom of God. Our power is not like the power of the world. Again, our power is not like the power of the world. It looks nothing the same. In fact, you could pretty easily argue that that's the thing that makes the kingdom most unique, is, is the kingdom approach to power. And today we'll make that very clear. So let's read, uh, we'll reread Acts 8, 9 to 13, which we read last week, but then we'll continue on to verse 25. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone, from the least to the greatest, often spoke of him as the Great One, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believe Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. 
Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles that Philip performed. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, May your money be destroyed along with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things you've said won't happen to me. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. All right. I wanted to begin by once again examining the first part of Simon's encounter with Christian life, because I think it's a healthy reminder about the nature of divine power. In going to the Samaritans, Philip is making clear that enemies can become friends under the banner of Jesus Christ. Even Samaritans are welcome in the kingdom. Samaritans and Judeans hated each other, as we discussed at length last week, and there's lots of reasons why. They, they just hated each other. But now the gospel has come to even them. Even them, even the Samaritans are welcome into the family of God. It's like a Baptist preacher inviting a Muslim cleric over for dinner. It's like that big of a, I can't believe that's happening. Or, even more shocking, it's like a guy from Westlock driving to Barhead just to say nice things out the window to the people in the streets. That would never happen. Yeah, we're all looking at you, Lisa. Barhead. Westlock and Barhead are arch rivals. That would never happen. Well, if Philip can head to Samaria to rebuild that bridge, maybe even the Barheadians can experience redemption. Yeah. Our missionaries to Barhead. It's hard to overstate, though, the enormity of Philip's mission trip to Samaria. It's a big deal. But did you notice something interesting that happens to the Samaritans? Philip represents the second generation of church leaders, people like Stephen and Paul. These second generation men and women dominate the story of Acts from chapter 6 onwards. Ch chapter 6 is where we first meet Stephen and Philip. From then on, the apostles begin to take a backseat, and it's men like Philip and Stephen who do the grunt work of ministry, including going to Samaria. They accomplish incredible things, performing mighty acts of salvation equal to any performed by those first generation leaders, the apostles. However, despite the success of Philip's evangelism in Samaria, despite all the baptisms and all the conversions, his work appears to be incomplete until the heavy hitters show up. Namely, two men who are among Jesus' three closest friends on earth, Peter and John. It's not until these super apostles pray for the Samaritans that the Holy Spirit arrives. They believed and were baptized, the Samaritans, but no Holy Spirit, not until Peter and John show up. So what gives? Does that mean that we aren't fully saved until Petey Boy intervenes on our behalf? Is that what that means? Well, theologians have been confused for a long time about this passage. Some believe this is evidence of the necessity of confirmation. You've probably heard of confirmation. Many of the more hierarchical churches 
uh, perform it as a sacred rite, uh, where someone in the successive lines of uh, apostles, so that would be like a priest, confirms the presence of the Spirit to seal salvation within the believer. That you are not saved until you are confirmed by an apostle. But I don't think that's the point. That's not what this passage is teaching. Uh, it's for a few reasons. First of all, other stories of salvation throughout the New Testament occur without any apostolic confirmation. Even in Scripture, it's not necessary. Plus, you'd think Scripture would be more specific if formal confirmation was required for salvation, don't you? Like, it's pretty specific about baptism. It's pretty specific about taking communion. It's not at all specific about confirmation. So maybe it's not that big a deal. But more than that, more than the reasons why this doesn't mean confirmation, what does this passage, what does it mean? I think Peter and John heading to Samaria is another commentary on power in the church. John doesn't say much in this passage, right? Of course, it's Peter who does all the talking. It's always Peter doing all the talking. But John's mere presence on this trip speaks volumes. Way back when we studied Luke 9, and that was already two years ago, we read of another time where John the Apostle, who was then only a disciple, encountered the Samaritans. Anybody remember what happened in that story? No, it's okay if you don't. It's, it's kind of a, a smaller story. Well, Jesus had set out for Jerusalem, which meant passing through Samaria, but the Samaritans were very rude and inhospitable to Jesus. When John and his brother James, who, by the way, bore the absolutely fantastic nickname, Sons of Thunder, which is such an awesome nickname, and it had as much to do with um, their emotional disposition as it did with their family heritage, when James and John heard of this slight against their master, they were furious. In fact, they turned to Jesus, and you can imagine their faces all red and veins bulging in their neck and fists clenched, and they say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call fire down on these ignorant Samaritans? That's their first response. Jesus, they didn't want Jesus, so let's rain down fire on them. Now, I can't imagine that they would have said this in Nazareth, because Nazareth, the Nazarenes did more than just reject Jesus. They wanted to push Jesus off a cliff. But James and John weren't there raining fire down on them. No, they rained fire. They wanted to rain fire down on who? Samaritans. It was their bias bubbling over into hatred. Something we've seen here in the West over the last few weeks, or check that, centuries, actually. Their hatred bubbled over. It's not that they rejected Jesus. It's that they already didn't like those guys. So let's rain fire down on them. That'll teach you. So the last time that Luke wrote of John's interaction with the Samaritans, it was one of furious wrath, righteous indignation, and desire for vengeance. In other words, acts of power designed to bring death to an outsider. Right? Now, however, after the completion of Jesus' ministry and the full transformation of John's heart, now that John gets it better than he had those two, three, four years earlier, whenever it was, maybe longer, I'm not sure. But John has been changed. His heart has been fully changed by the Holy Spirit. And now he gets it. And so there is a major contrast. Instead of bringing judgment and vengeance, John brings prayers and redemption. It's not the power of fiery wrath. It's the power of saving grace. This is the power that followers of Jesus are called to wield power of grace, forgiveness, love. Not necessarily the power of judgment and wrath. You know, I read a story about, maybe you read it too, about a pastor in Louisiana, Tony Perkins, 
who's on record preaching that natural disasters in America are God's judgment against gay people. You may have heard that about places like Haiti as well, that the reason it's in shambles is because it deals with the devil's interest. I think that's all garbage. Well, you want to hear something ironic? Guess whose house was totally flooded and destroyed in, in Hurricane Harvey? Pastor Perkins. So either Pastor Perkins is gay and his message is true, which I doubt, or God sends rain on the just and the unjust alike, as Jesus says in Matthew 5.45. And Pastor Perkins' message of God's judgment is maybe hogwash. Maybe just hot air that confirms to the world that lots of people in the church hate outsiders and not love them. This follower of Jesus, this pastor in Louisiana, wields tremendous power. But like John in Luke 9, he wishes to use that power for wrath and self-righteous indignation. But a transformed John has learned the true essence of power, that the Holy Spirit manifests his power in us to save and to heal and to bring life to the lost, not to condemn and to judge. Jesus himself didn't come to judge. The judge of all humankind, that's the role he is given because he's perfect. He didn't come to judge. He came to seek and save the lost. So if Jesus can do that, maybe his followers better do that too. One final thing about the apostles finishing Philip's job. It marks a turning point among the powerful leaders of the church. A baton toss from the first to the second generation that I talked about last week and already today. But I want to talk about it a little more specifically. It used to be the apostles breaking ground for the, for the, for the gospel. But now it's men like Philip. Men who maybe hadn't ever even heard Jesus in person. Certainly weren't among the twelve who followed him everywhere. But they get the baton passed to them. Remember, Samaria was the source of a lot of hostility in Jerusalem. And that's where that was ground zero for the church, was still Jerusalem. That all the apostles were still there, it says at the beginning of chapter eight. Everyone else fled, not fled in fear, but fled to spread the seeds of the gospel. But the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was still ground zero. And Jerusalem and Samaria still hated each other. That hadn't changed just because of Jesus. And so having Peter and John two of the big-time apostles, uh, complete the transaction, if you will, between Samaritans and the Holy Spirit, it's a big old stamp of approval for the Samaritans. It's not saying all believers need to be confirmed by an apostle, but this is a special case where these outsiders, these Samaritans, were particularly despised by the place where the church is centered. And so to have Peter and John, John, by the way, who had once called fire down on these people, to have Peter and John go to them and say, we love you, we accept you. Here's the gift of the Holy Spirit. That, I mean, that would have meant the world to the Samaritans. So it's not that Philip was incomplete in power. It's that this was a special case where the heavy hitters needed to be called in. But the apostles' role is shifting. To quote Agent Fernando, it's shifting from initiation to verification. They're not the ones who break the ground. They're the ones who water the seeds that other people plant. Men like Philip or Paul. Jerusalem and Samaria are now united under Christ. And if that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. Such is the power of the blood of Jesus. And with that, Philip's powerful work in Samaria is confirmed as well. And how had Philip's work convinced the people of Samaria? What did Philip do to convince them about Jesus the Redeemer? Power. Acts of power. And what kind of power was it? Well, certainly wasn't military or political power. 
It wasn't even with powerful arguments either, although that's a little closer. Rather, Philip convinced them with powerful truth. The truth that he brought was that Jesus is the Redeemer. That was a powerful life-changing truth uh, that he brought to them. And with powerful signs. Acts of power that demonstrated the loving heart of God. These signs undermine the world's perception of power. Philip doesn't mingle with the wealthy or the religious elite. Just like Jesus, Philip uh, allowed the Holy Spirit to be displayed through him and bring power to who? The hurting, the outsiders, the lost. Um, paralytics were made to walk again. The demon-possessed were given freedom. The disabled men and women were able to walk. The unwanted children of Samaria were welcomed as sons and daughters in the family of God. I'll say that again. The unwanted children of Samaria were welcomed as sons and daughters in the family of God. And that's the essence of divine power. Again, it's not a power that condemns and judges. It's a power that redeems and heals and welcomes and delivers and saves. It's a power that brings light and life where there was once darkness and death. Now that's not to say that when this power comes to you, you can stay just like you are. Obviously not. In fact, because it's so powerful, it will change you and shape you into something that looks more like the master who sent that power. That's how powerful it is. It can shape even me into something holy. So when that power comes, it comes not to judge and condemn. It comes to save and heal and deliver and to welcome. Then it begins to do the work of pruning off dead things in us. But when we start with that pruning, we're missing the core of that power. God demonstrates his love and acts of power so that his name will be praised. That's why he does any of it. That's the end goal of any of these signs, any of these, this powerful truth. The end goal isn't just to save us. That's kind of just a nice benefit for us. The end goal of this power, the powerful truth and the powerful science, is that God is glorified. That's the end goal of all human existence. We are here for God. I know that's shocking to hear in our individual look out for number one world that we live in, but we're not here for us. We're ultimately here for God. And that, those powerful signs, the powerful truth, that's what that does, is it draws people to that power. But that was not the case for everyone who was drawn to the power of the Holy Spirit. Not everyone witnesses the power of the Holy Spirit and is drawn to bring glory to God. Some people witness the great power of the Holy Spirit at work in servants of Jesus, and rather than being led to worship, uh, are led to covetous idolatry. And may I present as evidence of this fact the man known as Simon the Magician. Philip had arrived filled with such power that Simon was convinced to follow him and even be baptized by him. And baptism is an act of submission that also works as a transfer of power from ourselves to our Savior. Later on in the story, like what we just read this morning, Peter and John had arrived with apostolic power when they prayed and placed their hands on the New Samaritan believers. And when they did that, when they prayed and laid hands on the believers, something similar to Pentecost must have occurred. Perhaps the wind and fire and tongues from the original Pentecost, we're not sure what happened, but something happened when the Holy Spirit was introduced by the apostles. Because for the second time in this chapter, Simon is amazed by the power wielded by servants of Jesus. For the second time. Something big must have happened, because Simon is again blown away. Except this time, 
Simon makes his motivations achingly, sadly, crystal clear. Upon seeing the apostles' authoritative power to gift the Holy Spirit to fellow believers, Simon attempts to purchase the rights to that power from Peter, much like I might purchase the rights from Arby's to set up a franchise in Clyde, which now has you all thinking about roast beef, right? That's the power, such as the power that I have over you. I suggest this thing that I may have, and immediately you want it. Well, that's what happened with Simon. In fact, this story led to the creation of a new English word. Here's your word nerd moment for the day. It's not Greek, it's English. Simony is, as defined by Miriam Webster, an attempt to buy or sell an authoritative church position or preferment. In other words, simony is an attempt to gain power in the church in the same way that the world gains power, through money. And for the same reason, personal gain. Whenever that happens in the church, that's simony. It is a truly awful thing that way too many church leaders fall susceptible to. How many board members have been elected in churches, ministries, Bible colleges, because they're wealthy and influential, not because they have a heart for service in the kingdom? How many of those boards elect the poorest member of their group? Does, do the poor not have a stake in the kingdom? Do the poor not have a voice that's worthy of being heard? That's simony. When that happens, when somebody's elected to a position of power simply because they're wealthy and influential, that is simony. How many pastors have sought to serve others only for the financial gain that they can reap uh, for themselves out of it? That's simony. Um, if I were to go into business just doing weddings and funerals, and that's how I made my money, conferring blessings on others in order to get paid, I'm, I think I'm missing the point a little bit. It'd be pretty sweet. But... Won't do it. How many people encounter powerful acts of God in their lives only to ask, so what's in it for me? That's simony. Those aren't the literal definitions of simony, but they're the logical extensions of it. Simon is a portrait of beholding the life-changing power of God and craving that power for yourself. And that is a major temptation. Some people are just in it for the bangs and whistles, to align themselves with power and to profit from it. That is terrible sin. To prove that it's terrible sin, listen to Peter's response to it. May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Whew. That is crushing. P Peter lays it all out there. But he had to. Same with Ananias and Sapphira. This is not something that the church can get into the habit of participating in. The Holy Spirit cannot be bought. The blood of Christ cannot be bartered. The gospel cannot be contained in a wallet. That is not how power works in the church. Power is given to the selfless and the servant-hearted, not the self-serving and power-hungry. Even Simon's response to Peter's rebuke demonstrates a power-hungry heart. Peter tells him to what? Pray for forgiveness, right? Simon believes that Peter's prayers will be more impactful than his own. He sees Peter as the one wielding the power, and so he goes to Peter. Hey, you ask God not to do this thing to me. That's not how forgiveness works either. That You have to go to God. You have to humble yourself. You have to fall on your knees before him. And then he will return, re redeem you. 
That's repentance. You don't ask somebody else to do that for you. Just because he showed power doesn't mean he has the power to save you. He prayed to Peter and not God. He doesn't pray to God for forgiveness and renewed heart as Peter instructs him to. Simon doesn't care at all for the freedom that Christ brings through a life lived in service to him. Instead, he prays to Peter, who had demonstrated visible power, so that he can be free from punishment. Not free from sin, which is the glorious offer that Jesus gives, the glorious offer that only Jesus can give. He doesn't pray to be free from sin, to be free from idolatry, to be free from the love of money. Instead, he prays to Peter that he would be free from punishment that is due him. Simon still viewed power through the eyes of the world. He was treating the Holy Spirit in the same way he treated his magical abilities, something to be manipulated for personal gain. Simon believed and was baptized, but not with the intention of giving his life to Jesus. He did not want Jesus. All he wanted was Jesus' power. Do you see how corrupt that is? He didn't want Jesus. He wasn't going to take that power and go and save people with it, obviously. He wanted that power to have that power. He wanted to be the one to put hands on people and they get the Holy Spirit, because then people would love him, and he could make money out of that. Yeesh. Uh, the sad thing is I see, we see, all kinds of that in the church today. As Peter makes clear, that's not how it works. We had better learn that lesson, or we doom ourselves, just like the namesake of the word, Simony. Sadly, this is interesting. It seems that Simon never learned his lesson. Church tradition dating back to the second century holds that Simon, this Simon, Simon Magus, was the father of the Gnostics. The Gnostics were a heretical sect of offshoot Christians who believed God could be known through secret knowledge that only they possessed. The word gnosis in Greek with a G, gnosis. The word gnosis in Greek means knowledge, so they claimed exclusive knowledge of the divine, and they demeaned Jesus in the process. They made him less than who he said he was. So, if Simon really is the author of that heretical sect, that means he found where true power comes from, knowledge. And he wielded that power in a self-serving way, gathered a whole bunch of people to distract them from Jesus and follow him. Knowledge is power. He just used the wrong kind of knowledge in a broken and corrupt way. Peter reminds us that there could be no talk of power unless, unless one's heart is right before God, ready to submit to his power and sacrifice our own lives in order to fully experience the saving power of Jesus Christ. That's how we experience power, by laying our lives down. It's not something that can be bought or traded or sold. So, after two parts, a two-part sermon, what have we learned in the story of Philip, Peter, John, and Simon? It is, quite literally, a powerful story. It's a story that's filled with power of all kinds and lessons about power. And it's a powerful warning to us. What is the source of real power? Is it politics, military force, finances, religious elitism? None of the above. Before the mighty throne of Jesus Christ, all the world's presidents and bankers and CEOs and generals will be just as pathetically naked and ashamed as you and I just as small. But for those of us who fully submit for the sake of the glory of God, there is power beyond the ability to describe. Power to truly free our neighbors, to be truly freed ourselves. Power to bring life where others experience only death. Power to know and love and praise the almighty creator of heaven and earth. Power to share in his power. 
And that only comes through submission, sacrifice, and servitude. Just make sure you aren't in it for the power. That will immediately disqualify you from experiencing it at all. If you're in it for the power, you will receive no power. Simon sought God's power without any desire to actually know God, and for that he was roundly condemned. So make sure your heart is right before God, and you will radiate a power that turns enemies into brothers and sisters, friends, just like Philip and the Samaritans. Seek power for his glory and not your own. And for goodness sake, make sure your name is written on the book of life in the end and not the annual Forbes list. In conclusion, we're going to pray in a second here. But first, a very special offer. For the low, low price of only $10 a pop, I'd be happy to offer a powerful prayer for you and your loved ones. Just forward that right up to me. I call it Lansimony, and coining a new thing. Sounds like a foolproof plan, so we can do that right now if you want. Yeah, it sounds ridiculous. But in ways both subtle and obvious, there are so many people who attempt to do exactly that. Here's the power that I have, and I will give it to you in exchange for money. Or, I want that power so I can have power, prestige, so people will like me. Any of that is broken and corrupt. Power only comes and is experienced when we are as low and as least as we can be at the foot of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good to us, and we thank you for your power that you share with us. You are strong and mighty, mighty enough to save even us. And we thank you that you share that power with us, that you choose to make our hearts your throne. We are blown away by how powerful you are, Jesus. And we're also blown away by the fact that you turn us into powerful people. So thank you for that. Help us to always push aside a love of money and prestige. Help us to push that aside, not seek our own will, not seek our own glory, but seek your will and your glory. Thank you for your power. We praise you for it, Father. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus.